Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I'm just back off of our trip to Israel. We had a great trip. Looking forward to being back on the program back in the United States. So much to catch up on with Ken Timmerman, David Dolan. Winky Madav will be with us. You know, we got emails from folks that told us our own Winky Madad was on the BBC uh, talking about Jewish settlements and the conflict between Jews and Palestinians in Israel. Well, we're going to talk to Winky about that. R.C. Merle will be back with this bank controversy that's taking place. Of course, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, the Legacy Series, talking about Iraq. We've got a lot to cover today. Let's get ready, Rick. Let's get started. That's right, Jimmy. I've got Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure. Ken, lots of stories to get to this week. We'll start with the United States getting involved in military action in Syria. Tell us what happened. There was a strike by Iranian drones from a Iranian-backed group in Syria against a U.S. base. A contractor, an American contractor, was killed. There were five others who were wounded. Uh, and as a result of that on Thursday, the U.S. launched counterstrikes later on Thursday, killing as many as 11 Iranian military officers who were at one of these bases servicing the drones. You know, Rick, we've had these kind of uh, strikes by the Iranians against the U.S. uh, for some time now. They haven't been getting much press here in the United States. The White House does not want the American public to know about this. But we've learned that there have been, in fact, 78 Iranian attacks on U.S. positions in Syria since January of 2021. Now, of course, all of us know what happened in January 2021. There was a political change of administration here in the United States, and all of a sudden, the Iranians felt emboldened to attack Americans in ways they hadn't done before. We had the head of U.S. CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command, General Eric Carrillo, at the House Armed Services Committee on Thursday, and he was questioned about this, the Iranian strikes, the drones, and the rest, and he made this extraordinary statement. He said, quote, Iran has exponentially more military capabilities today than they did just five years ago. And five years ago, again, let me remind you, that was during Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign on Iran when sanctions were really at their utmost. Since Biden has come in, he has reduced the sanctions. The Iranians have built up their military. And now, as I say, we have 78 attacks on U.S. bases in northern Syria. Okay, and that's a theme that I might reintroduce throughout this interview here is that it does look like the United States is waning influence there, is changing the dynamics in the Middle East. But let's continue with Syria right now. And last week, we reported on the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia were resuming talks and beginning a relationship again. And now Saudi Arabia and Syria, what's going on there? Well, the Saudis and Syria have agreed to reestablish diplomatic ties. They've reopened their embassies in each other's capitals. And another ally in that region of the United States, the UAE, welcomed Assad to uh, visit their country on an official visit. This is really a complete collapse of U.S. diplomacy in the region. Our policy has been to isolate Assad, and it's been that way since 2011, since the Obama administration. And that policy is collapsing right before our eyes as our Arab allies, the Saudis and the Emiratis, they go out of their way to bring Assad back into the fold. It shows a dramatically diminished 
U.S. influence in the Middle East. It's something I think is pretty dangerous. Many people are saying that that dramatic decrease in the United States influence began with our withdrawal from Afghanistan, that disastrous time. Is there something to that? Do you believe that that maybe was the beginning of the change in the dynamics in the Middle East? Oh, I think it's crystal clear, Rick, that uh, the way that we pulled out of Afghanistan was not just disgraceful. It was a sign to all of our enemies that anybody could mess with us, that we were no longer to be feared. Uh, Just do whatever you want uh, was the message. And they all have gotten it. The Iranians got the message. The Russians got the message. The Chinese have gotten that message. The U.S. is no longer to be feared as a military power. We are no longer to be considered the preeminent diplomatic force in the world either. Uh, So this is serious. I certainly agree with you, Ken. And if you look at this rekindling of the Saudi-Iran relationship was brokered essentially by China. Our biggest ally has always been Israel in the Middle East. This has got to have them nervous about Iran and now China, too. I think that's absolutely right. You have a number of uh, Israeli analysts, including Amos Yadlin, uh, a friend of mine, who is warning about China getting involved in the Middle East. They have always been selling weapons to countries in the Middle East. That's something that is not new. But now they see them getting involved diplomatically uh, and militarily as well with bases in Iran that they have established by treaty. It's absolutely extraordinary to see that happening. Uh, And so the Israelis are beginning to feel that that safe area, that safe space that was created for them by the Trump administration with the Abraham Accords, where they were able to make peace, actual peace treaties with five Arab countries around them, that safe space is now being encroached upon by communist China. And it's a new day that they're waking up to. Well, Ken, we know that Israel is under no illusions. They have to be prepared to protect themselves. They know that they have a somewhat existential threat from Iran And they may be forced to a preemptive attack in the wake of Iran's development of nuclear weapons. Some reports coming out looking like Iran is preparing for the day after this anticipated Israeli attack. And they may be striking out targets in Israel and Jewish targets around the world and maybe even in the United States. Well, we, we have been talking about this, what I believe is an impending Israeli strike on Iran's nuclear facilities for some weeks now. Uh, But yes, you're right. The Iranians are now involved in what's called the mapping project. This is a kind of left-wing, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic effort here in the United States to identify law enforcement targets, but also Jewish targets uh, that could be eventually targeted by the Iranians in a post-strike terrorism campaign here on U.S. soil. So essentially, if we look at it like this, Iran is coming up with a game plan with what they might do if Israel attacks in an attempt to destroy their nuclear capacity. And the U.S. could be drawn into that. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And the Iranians, uh, people forget this, Uh, the Iranians are behaving as a global power. And they have done this for a number of decades. And we just don't pay enough attention to it. In 1992, they blew up the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, halfway across the world. They have engaged in terror attacks with Saudi Arabia, killing Saudi intelligence officers in Thailand. So the Iranians have shown that they can take terror anywhere in the world 
The United States certainly is not beyond their reach, but they could go elsewhere as well. I can see them operating in Latin America, for example. They've shown just the past couple of weeks that they can move military ships, naval vessels into Brazil, into Latin America. They can also move terrorists into Latin America. So I think we could see these Iranian operations after a strike all over the world. One of the things that we have been saying in the last few weeks, Ken, is that elections have consequences, leadership has consequences or lack of leadership, and foreign policy has consequences. And that is being played out all over the world. We need to keep an eye on what's going on in these areas because it could be on our doorstep before we know it. Well, let's move on. Last week, you reported to us about President Xi Jinping of China going to Russia to talk with Putin, maybe even potentially to broker peace. How did that visit go? Well, it was a very warm visit, and both the Chinese and the Russians went out of their way to show the two leaders, show their body language and uh, you know how close they were personally and physically to each other. So from that point of view, it was, it was very important. It showed that Putin is not isolated at all, and it showed also that the Chinese are not worried by U.S. threats to stay away from Moscow, to stay away from Putin. But one thing that did not happen, and I'm not 100% certain that Putin was seeking this, but there were many reports that he was. She did not endorse the Ukrainian war. They did not offer lethal aid weapons to Putin. And this was, I think, in part because of intense U.S. pressure behind the scenes. Uh, but he did embrace Putin diplomatically and economically. Uh, he offered oil and gas deals. So you're going to see greater cooperation between Russia and China on oil and gas. And that will essentially allow Putin to escape the noose of Western sanctions. He doesn't have to worry about Western sanctions because he's got a huge, huge market for Russian oil and gas right there in China. Well, Ken, we've talked often of this burgeoning relationship or this continuing and growing relationship between these two nations. I'm just wondering, from your opinion, is there a hierarchy as we look at these? Are these equals or is one above the other? And secondly, who needs each other more? Is the relationship better for Russia or for China? You know, those are great questions, Rick. And I think now they are approaching each other as equals. And that wouldn't have been the case five or six years ago. Uh, and they're equals because the Chinese have got this economic clout that Russia is lacking. And the Russians have these tremendous national resources, the oil and gas that China needs. They are really symbiotic in so many different ways. The mm. Chinese can purchase Russian oil and gas, and by doing so, they keep the Russian economy afloat, which enables Putin to continue this war in Ukraine. Ken, how is this relationship being looked at? I know as the U.S. kind of withdraws and the China takes a more prominent role in their relationship with Russia, how is that affecting the European leadership and how they are looking at that situation with Russia? The Europeans are worried, uh, and they're worried to see China get close to Russia because they know that those two countries together will be tremendously powerful, more powerful than Europe. Uh, and I think they're also very concerned to see the decrease of U.S. power around the world and U.S. influence around the world. Ironically, a Russia-Chinese uh, duopoly can force the Europeans into a closer relationship with the United States. And those in Europe who may have wanted a United States of Europe 
independent of the United States. You know, the French have always dreamed of having a European military force that is independent of the U.S. and of NATO. I think those voices uh, are going to be less and less popular uh, as we see Russia and China come together. Well, Ken, so many moving parts going on here. We appreciate you uh, being a roadmap for us because all these things are interconnected and we see these stories develop from week to week. Rick, we got to take a break. And Ken, we're going to ask you to stand by because you wrote an article for Front Page Mag. And we're going to talk about that. It's on a rock. We're going to be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. China and Russia are discussing a new world order after deepening economic ties this week. Though affirming commitments to each other, neither side talked about ending Russian aggression in Ukraine. Chinese President Xi Jinping traveled to Moscow after brokering a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this month. MENA Leadership Center's Fadi Shariah describes how geopolitics affects Christians in the full story at our website. Ask God to give believers wisdom. Meanwhile, a recent gathering in the Middle East brought together church-centric Bible translators from around the world. Christian leaders representing 16 different nations gathered to learn from each other and develop new strategies. Unfolding words, David Reeves says connecting in person instead of over Zoom allowed the translators to deepen relationships. They also created plans that they're implementing today. Find your place in this story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Well, Ken Timmerman is back with us for a little bit of overtime, a little bit of extra time as we discuss an article that you wrote, Ken. Thank you for coming back with us. Uh, Thank you, Rick. It's, uh, It's a pleasure. Well, Ken, this article, and we're coming up on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the second Gulf War when we went in and got Saddam Hussein. Uh, Can you tell us why you wrote this article and basically what you're saying in this article? Well, Rick, I think it's very important to correct the historical record. Americans have been taught a history of lies about this war, a history forged by left-wing political activists and their allies in the media, and rarely contradicted by people who knew the truth. Even Britannica, you know, what used to be the Encyclopedia Britannica, they have bowed to this political orthodoxy, referring to Saddam Hussein's, quote, alleged possession and ability to manufacture weapons of mass destruction. Well, that's simply not true. It was not alleged, but this was the founding myth of all of those people who said Bush lied, people died. I go through in this article the actual evidence of what we found in Iraq after the war was over. We sent in 1,500 U.S. Special Forces operators, scientists, intelligence analysts to scour Iraq for the evidence of what he had. 
and they did not find, quote, stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons. That became the term of art. Every news media organization in the U.S. said no stockpiles, no weapons. But that's simply not true. <laughs> that is simply not true. What they did find were all of the ingredients for the weapons, but the weapons hadn't been put together yet. And I detail this. They found chemical weapons precursors, thousands of tons. They found biological weapons agents that the Iraqis were working on. And they were even conducting experiments in prison, testing biological warfare agents. Why do you conduct human experiments killing prisoners with biological uh, agents if you don't have a biological weapons program? They found 500 tons of natural uranium. This is the ingredient for uranium hexafluoride gas, which can then be enriched and to make a nuclear weapon. Why would, did the Iraqis have 500 tons of natural uranium if they did not have a nuclear program? They also found manufacturing equipment, plans, and advanced design work for long-range missiles, contact with North Korea. The list goes on and on and on. But here's the kicker. It was Karl Rove who ultimately decided during the 2004 campaign, when the Democrats were ginning up this Bush lied, people died campaign, he said, look, let's not talk about the evidence. Let sleeping dogs lie. We've lost the war of public opinion. And so let's not go back to it. Rove later admitted that. He said it was a mistake, his biggest mistake in the White House. And I happen to agree with him. I think Americans are uh, owed the truth. We need to know the truth about what actually happened. We lost 4,400 uh, Americans to give the Iraqis the most precious thing any human being has got, which is their freedom. Let, let us make sure that they do not die in vain. Let us make sure that they ha did not die without the truth being known to the rest of their, their fellow citizens. I couldn't agree with you more, Ken. And then reading this article, this is essentially the way I feel about the whole situation, too. And even when you take out the, the weapons of mass destruction, if you look at Saddam Hussein, he was a brutal dictator who was killing his own people at a record pace. He was essentially a weapon of mass destruction just on his own, wasn't he? Absolutely right. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Iraqi Kurdistan in the north. And Kurds, uh, boy, they... They are among the biggest supporters of the United States because uh, this same week they are also commemorating the 35th anniversary of another event. But that was the massacre of 5,000 Kurds in Halabja when Saddam poured poison gas on that city. 100,000 Kurds were massacred in the months following that in what called the Anfal campaign to commit genocide against the Kurds. So we have forgotten all of those things. It's important to set the record straight. History must be told on a factual basis and not on political slogans such as Bush lied, people died. Final question on this subject, Ken, and this is going to relate to a question I asked you earlier uh, in the program when we talked about the Afghanistan withdrawal and the way America reacted in that. But this whole Iraqi war and the Afghanistan war that started before it was a response in general to the Islamic fundamental attack on 9-11. I don't think we would have that kind of response today, and I think that that invites us, uh, makes us open to more attacks. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with my characterization of uh, this is a response to 9-11? Well, it was a response to 9-11, and, and everybody knew it at the time. And uh, you had a lot of people saying, well, we should be attacking Iran and not Iraq. Well, the problem was there were seven U.N. Security Council resolutions against Iraq. There were zero against Iran. Uh, so it's very hard to put together an international coalition when you haven't done the groundwork. Uh, but 
there was not the allegation that Saddam Hussein was part of 9-11. It wasn't because of that specifically. It was in the atmosphere created by the 9-11 attacks that we launched the attack uh, in, into Iraq. President Bush's justification, and by the way, every Democrat in the Senate agreed with it, is that you cannot, we cannot in the post 9-11 environment live in a world where a brutal dictator who's willing to murder 100,000 of his own people acquires weapons of mass destruction. That is a threat just too big to allow to continue. We'll post that article on our website, Ken. And, uh, you know, you and Dad for years carried on conversations uh, about this situation, and uh, you've covered it. Dad covered it. This is the way that he thought, and Saddam Hussein was the weapon of mass destruction. And he was using an army, which he called the Jerusalem Army, who was going to go to Jerusalem. And we've told that story. And in fact, our legacy series this week is about the end of Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq, Revelation 18 and 17. And uh, if you stick around for our legacy series teaching that will come up later on. Well, Rick, it's time now for our Middle East News Update with David Dolan. This is the portion of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. We focus on the entire Middle East, but especially Israel. And to do that, we have author and journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining with us today. You're welcome, Rick. Well, Dave, there are so many things taking place on the political forefront in Israel right now. We have lots of stories to get to, but let's get an update. Where are we with the protests that are taking place with this judicial overhaul? What's the news we need to know from that situation? Well, there's a lot of news, Rick, but basically on Thursday evening, the prime minister gave an unscheduled address. He was supposed to be en route to London for meetings with the British government. He postponed that a few hours, went on the television and said that the judicial process will not be canceled, as many were speculating he would say, that it needs to go forward. He said we've uh, offered some moderating conditions, but we will continue on with the process. And he said, I will take over the negotiations with everybody about this, whereas the attorney general had earlier ruled he couldn't do that because he has some pending cases of his own, judicial cases of his own uh, against him. But it came after a week of all sorts of developments. We had another major day of protests on Thursday all over the country. We had a huge uh, anti-government rally down in B'nai Brak, which is an Orthodox neighborhood in the Tel Aviv area, and several of the Orthodox ministers lived there. There were some clashes there. There were clashes all over the place. But more importantly, we continue to have this trend in the military reserves, the announcements of more and more soldiers and pilots and others not being willing to go to reserve training sessions. A letter was signed by thousands of them during the week. It's a group called Brothers in Arms uh, protesting against these judicial reforms and saying again they wouldn't do that. So it's a real mess and Netanyahu's going to be uh, in London over the weekend probably glad to be away from the flames for a little bit. So with all this stuff going on, so many moving parts to this one particular story with Netanyahu taking over the talks, what does that mean? How is that going to be different? Do we think that it's going to be able to affect a compromise? Is that what do you think what his goal is? And, and I know even when he compromises, he needs to hold his coalition together, right? Well, right. But the talks were being led by the justice ministry headed by Schmoltrich, who, of course, is 
very right-wing and very much pushing this process forward. And it was considered by the opposition, they just couldn't even talk to him about it. So Netanyahu thinks that he may be able to do it and keep his government together. And earlier in the week, Rick, they actually modified uh, the proposal somewhat of what they want to see passed. Instead of nine members of a, a judicial selection committee to select new judges, it was up to 11. Three justices from the Supreme Court would sit on it, including the chief justice. One must be a woman. The justice minister and two cabinet ministers would sit on it, one a woman, and three coalition and two opposition members. So basically, he's modifying the proposals, but it does mean that whatever governments in power would have at least two judges they could basically appoint without any opposition or, you know, any chance of stopping the proposal. It's not earth shattering, frankly. It's not the end of democracy. It doesn't make Netanyahu a dictator, but it definitely increases the power of the ruling government, which of course could be the opposition at any time with what's going on. In fact, if Galan did resign, probably the government would fall apart and we'd have yet again new elections or attempts to form a new coalition. David, you're so right. It is a balagan, that Hebrew word that means a jumbled mess. That's what this is. It's a jumbled mess in Israel. Well, thanks for helping us to understand it. Uh, we got to take a break, David. When we come back, uh, we're talk about the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli talks, and plus what's going on in Syria. We'll do that when we come back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We still have David Dolan on the line. And Rick, as we think about that, uh, and uh, what are what, your last words and your last thoughts on the protest uh, as we talk with David about what's going on in Israel? Well, I personally think, David, that there is some legitimate concerns on both sides of the political aisle here, but I think what's complicating this whole issue is politics and personality politics. Some of these politicians don't like Netanyahu and maybe likewise by Netanyahu. Well, we'll move on. And even with all this going on right now and the whole political system in Israel in upheaval and turmoil, they still have the Palestinian situation that continues to heat up, especially now as we enter into Ramadan. This is typically a time where feelings and, and, and activity is escalated. Uh, this comes earlier in the week off of a story where there was maybe some progress in the right direction with the Palestinian peace process. Yes, uh, Rick. In fact, it was phenomenal to me to 
uh, read the Palestinian reaction to this summit meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh in the the southern uh, Sinai Peninsula held last Sunday. Now, that's, of course, the second such meeting. The first was the end of last month in uh, Aqaba in Jordan. Jordan and Egypt were involved in these talks, and the United States mediated, but it was PA and Israeli government representatives that met, and they agreed to several important things, that there would be no new Israeli homes built in the next four months, uh, units built, that there would be no approval of uh, Israeli existing communities that haven't been legalized for the next six months. That was a compromise on the Netanyahu government's part. Meanwhile, the Palestinians pledged basically to restart security cooperation, the PA, I should say, with Israel, and to do everything they could to calm the situation down. And Jordan was really behind this, Rick. It was afraid that uh, Ramadan was just going to explode into violence, which of course it still could, because even though this was a very positive development and the PA afterwards issued a statement saying, while we couldn't do this with the previous government, which of course was center left with an Arab party in it, we could do it with the Netanyahu government. So they gave him a, a compliment basically, but Hamas and Islamic Jihad immediately came out and condemned it, Hezbollah condemned it, and they all said they would fight against it, fight to uproot it. So, um, But it does indicate we may have the PA security forces again active in the north of Samaria themselves to try to quell these Iranian-backed groups that have just run amok over the last year, and uh, that may help to calm the situation, or this may all be window dressing that in the end doesn't change the situation, but it at least changes the tone Uh, uh, the atmosphere between the PA and the Israelis. Well, continuing on, we could talk for quite a while about these different politics and events that are taking place, but let's move to Israel's northern border. I'd like to talk about Syria. There has been some Israeli uh, operations going on there, and then new information coming out about Russian activity in Syria. Yes, there was another uh, alleged Israeli airstrike, but undoubtedly so, on the airport of Aleppo. Aleppo is actually Syria's largest city, larger than Damascus, and its cultural and trade center. Uh, Some Israeli missiles were fired from aircraft off the coast, uh, the uh, Syrians said, and one of the runways was damaged. Of course, they condemned that and and vowed revenge, etc. But more ominously to me, Rick, was the uh, report from the U.S. uh, government from a senior military leader that the Russians have been flying regular sorties over the Altamf American base in the east of Syria. That base set up to fight ISIS mainly, and it's still active. There's still U.S. forces there on the ground and equipment. And uh, he said that there's there's been, uh, you know, dozens of these overflights this month. And that last month there were none. And he said they've been coming within a mile of the actual troop concentrations on the ground, in other words, easily within missile range, rocket range, whatever, and uh, the U.S. is not happy with it, and it's, uh, it's interpreted in Israel as Russia stepping up once again its support for Syria, showing again its muscle, resisting the United States, taking down drones over the Black Sea or whatever, and of course the rapprochement the full rapprochement I should say, this week between China and Putin. Uh, Xi and Putin is very frightening in Israel, 
It definitely increases Russia's power and influence all over the world. Its military might is enhanced, and its willingness to noodle around and create problems is probably enhanced as well. But you and I know that's in the scriptures. China and Russia will both be involved in the final battles against Israel, and so those alliances strengthening and uh, these overflights going on. Again, the U.S. has said nothing publicly so far about this, and some Republicans are already criticizing the Biden administration for not confirming this and not opposing it. Well, David, as we like to say here on the program, the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And as we look at many of these events taking place, world leaders and countries coming together, basically setting the stage for the end time scenario that Scripture tells us is going to happen. David, we appreciate you navigating us through all this conflicting situations. We'll be back next week, hopefully, Lord willing. You'll be with us as we talk about what is taking place during this first week of Ramadan. We appreciate what you do, David, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Wish it were all good news, but we have good news, and we thank God for that. God bless, Rick. We definitely have good news, and it's thank you for covering it. Well, uh, we have uh, Israel Madag coming up, Rick, and uh, you know we got uh, several emails this last week that our man, <laughs> Winky, was on the BBC and uh, reporting on the Jewish settler system and what's taking place in in the settlements between the Jews and the Palestinians, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And uh, so we thought we had to get Winky back on the program this week to find out what's going on. That's right, Jimmy. Winky Madad is with us. He is a frequent guest on the program. He is from America, but has been living in Israel for over 40 years now. He's former mayor of Shiloh, living in the area that we call Judea and Samaria. The world may call the West Bank. Winky, thank you for coming back on the program. Thank you for having me. And actually, I've been in Israel now. Almost 53 years. Well, I stand corrected, Winky. So when exactly did you immigrate or, as we say, make Aliyah to Israel? Uh, my wife and I moved here in 1970. I, I was a student here in 66, 67, but that year doesn't count, although it was very important for me. Oh, so interesting. This is one of the reasons we love to talk to you, because not only do you have the biblical and the religious side of history there in Israel, but you were part of history as you were uh, in Israel while so many different things were taking place, so many things were going on. You give us a great perspective, and, and also you give other people a great perspective. We just got a message from one of our listeners, Adez Watson, who listens to our podcast from Stafford, England, and, and he sent us an article in the BBC that you were in. He said, our own Israel Madad is mentioned. Uh, thank you for listening, Des. And also, let's talk about this article in the BBC. Now, they're talking about settler outposts. Can you tell us a little bit about the story they did with you there? Well, uh, there's a fellow named Tim Franks, who was a BBC correspondent here somewhere about 15 years ago. I would talk with him, and every once in a while, I'd, I'd do sort of like an interview or even a backgrounder. Uh, with him, and for some strange reason, he thinks a little bit highly of me, and he said, I'm coming in to do a few stories on Israel, both the uh, so-called settlements, our Jewish communities, and the political rambunctiousness, and I'd like to come out to Shiloh and, and do an interview with you. And I won't go into all the details, but we sat, you know, for a long while, about a half an hour or so. I think I got about a sentence and a half on the radio, 
and in the article itself was another two sentences or something like that. And I'm I'm very glad that they have a very large expense account to send two people out here for those programs uh, and spend a lot of time, but getting me on the BBC. I understand they have 75 million listeners. Well, that is great, and we think highly of you as well, Winky. Well, part of the thing you were talking about in that story, and some of it was the fact that the world and the United Nations and everybody will come together to attack maybe a few young Jewish settlers that might have gotten out of hand, and it also seems like in the same breath they're praising and celebrating Palestinian terrorists. You were you were kind of showing the dichotomy there, and am I paraphrasing that correctly? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I was brought up in America educationally. So the principles of liberty, equality, and democracy are very dear to me. And I think they're also very much in Judaism and also very much in Israel. And I I would like to be treated fairly. And I pointed out to them what I thought was a, a moral and even an ethical failure on the part of many of the European countries and some high fish officials in the United States who can't make the comparison between a few youngsters who, thank God, are not engaged in terror but in reprisal attacks and in violence that they should not be doing. And I think I made it very clear on the program that I do not agree with them. And on this program, I think many times we've discussed the issue and I've pointed that out. On the other hand, though, the other side, which is terroristic and 99% exclusively targeting civilians. Just last week, uh, we had this American uh, immigrant who actually happened to be a former Marine, and uh, he was shot at, and, and luckily because of his Army training, he was basically shooting back at the young terrorist also. And yet the EU and even the United States just glosses over the moral, ethical failings of the Palestinian side and put all the blame on us all the time. Well, that is correct, and that's why we have you on the program, to get your opinion and to get your side, and, and I certainly do agree with what you're saying. Well, let's continue on, and have we have you on the program to talk about political situations. Lots of politics taking place in Israel. I'd like to focus on this conversation with you on the Israeli finance minister, and I actually saw you on another program talking about this this week. I watched you uh, on my Facebook feed. I saw you on a program, but you were talking about this speech that Bezalel Smotrich, uh, obviously a controversial figure in Israel right now, but he seems to be very pro-Judea and Samaria, and he had a speech. There's two parts of this speech I'd like to talk to you about. The first thing I'd like to say is it was in front of a map, and this map uh, was not the map that is, is Israel now. It was a little different. Could you explain why that controversy and what happened in this uh, speech that he gave in front of this map? Well, you have to also realize, uh, first of all, the uh, context of the speech. It was at a private event. Uh, and, and memorializing someone who passed away. And this person was a very ideological Zionist, a member of the Jabotinsky revisionist movement, whose main, one of the, whose main planks in its platform was that the area of the land of Israel is not exactly what the state of Israel is. And originally, the League of Nations had intended that the Jewish national home straddle the Jordan River and would be on both sides. And so this map 
which includes Israel and Jordan, was a symbolic element of their ideology. It's not on the table today. It had historic significance, and it's for memorial and for, for memorizing and to keep it in mind. And, and Jordan got very angry. And if I can sort of refer back to the last question you asked me, no one mentions to the Palestinians why do they have on most of their propaganda a map that obliterates Israel? If you take a look at all their maps of the PLO, of the Hamas, of the Islamic Jihad, and a couple of other organizations, and official educational programs, they wipe out Israel. Do I hear the American ambassador talking about it? Do I hear the U.S. Secretary of State? Do I hear someone from, from the Foreign Ministry of, uh, of UK or France every once in a while mention it to them? No. But everybody gets excited about this private event in France that happened to have a map. His second point, and I'll quickly deal with this, where he said there's no Palestinian people. Of course, he didn't mean that there are no Arabs. We have Arabs in Israel, right? We call them Israeli Arabs. They call themselves already Palestinian Arabs who are citizens of Israel. But again, when this whole conflict started back in around 1920, they called themselves southern Syrians and demanded that Palestine, which is southern Syria, be reunited with greater Syria. So you would think that a national group that doesn't even know where its country is or what, who, to whom it belongs to, what its name is, wouldn't mind being called out on it by a minister of the Israeli government. But no, it, the world just doesn't see it that way. Certainly doesn't, but you look at that, and that's why we have you on the program to explain the historical context. Words do have meanings, and political narratives are put out there for a variety of reasons. We urge our listeners, and I know they do, we urge our listeners to look a little deeper than what is just being put out in the media. Well, we're coming up on the Jewish festival or Jewish feast of Passover. Also, Christian Easter takes place at the same time, and of course, Ramadan starts as well. This is a time, the the tensions are very high in Israel, especially in Jerusalem, especially in the Temple Mount area. wanted to ask you a couple questions. I know Israel has said in talks recently that they are committed to maintaining the status quo of the Temple Mount. Can you tell us, is there any new news there? They're going to be restricting Jewish presence on the Temple Mount only to the morning hours during the month of Ramadan. So we're, uh, you know, another, an hour to an hour and a bit will be cut off of the daily schedule. They'll be easing restrictions of Arabs coming into Jerusalem from the territories on Friday. I hope uh, there'll be no riots there. I hope that we have some sort of security to make sure that no uh, weapons or, or cold or hot if I can use that phrase, will be brought into the Temple Mount. And uh, we are open to allowing freedom of worship as much as possible, especially for non-Jews. <laughs> Jews always have a problem with freedom of religion in Israel. But uh, uh, I hope that no one takes advantage on the, uh, on the Arab or even, say, the Muslim side of Israel's generosity and willingness to be open to all religions and their activities. And uh, we hopefully this month uh, will pass without any of the problems that we saw in earlier years. But I have to be fair and honest with you. 
right? That Fridays can turn into all sorts of things, demonstrations, rock throwing, fireworks being shot. And so we'll just have to wait and, and hopefully uh, pray for the best. Uh, if we could pray on the Temple Mount, I'm sure that everything would be okay. But I don't think that's going to happen this year again. If we look at this, Winky, and I'm just wondering if you have plans during this Passover season, I know that you are a proponent of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, and and even on this program, you've talked about you're not trying to get rid of the Muslim or the Islamic presence on the Temple Mount. You're just saying that it should be the ability for both faiths to be up there. Do you plan on going to the Temple Mount during Passover? Uh, Definitely. In fact, one of the groups uh, has asked me to lead a tour in English. Uh, it'll be on the first, I think it'll be the first Monday of the holiday. Probably have it up on my Facebook, some sort of poster that people can see. I don't know how much I'll be able to talk. You know, these excursions, (laughs) if I can call it that way, the police move you around pretty quickly. And there's really no time to stop even for a minute and a half to say what this is and what that is. But uh, I will do my best for those who are able to join. Take a look at my Facebook page, Yisrael Medad, and uh, the poster will be up, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yisrael Medad, Y-I-S-R-A-E-L, Medad, M-E-D-A-D, correct? That is absolutely true. Well, Winky, thank you so much. Uh, as I said earlier, we appreciate you coming on the program. We do think enough of you, just like the BBC did. We think enough of you. We're glad you're on the program. We're glad you're here to explain these complicated situations to us. All right. Thank you very much again for having me on the program. And uh, goodbye to you and our listeners. Right now uh, on the program, and, and RC, I was in Israel at the time when all of this broke. And I wanted to get to you. We were so hectic with things going on over there. But uh, I knew I had to get you back on the program. R.C. Merle, welcome to the program again today. Thanks, thanks, Jimmy. It's good to be back with you. Good, Welcome back home. Uh, thank you, sir. And uh, two weeks ago, news broke that a Silicon Valley bank called SVB was experiencing a bank run with customers withdrawing their deposits. Over that weekend, fearful customers of another bank, Signature Bank, followed suit as investors feared a banking collapse reminiscent of 2008-2009. How did that all happen? Yeah, Jimmy, there there are several causes for the banking current banking crisis, and they're all tied to three things. Inflation, quantitative easing or money printing, and United States Treasury bonds. Now, first, we're going to deal with inflation. Beginning in 2021, Oil pipelines and drilling leases were canceled in the name of climate change, causing energy inflation started to rear up immediately. Oil and diesel fuel prices began to rise almost immediately, and the price of moving goods around the country skyrocketed. Mm. Second, Jimmy, we have money printing called quantitative easing, or QE, began in 2009 and continued in various forms with different names. It was ramped up in 2020 during the COVID crisis, driving interest rates down, and inflation began to show up. And third, all that money printing caused the bellwether 10-year Treasury bond yield to dip below 1% in 2020, and by 2021, finished the year at almost 3.5%, causing extreme volatility in the bond market that is really the staple of bank investments. Wow. R.C., well, help us. Uh, what caused these drastic moves? You know, inflation not seen since 1980 began to rear its ugly head in 2021. 
you know, as the Federal Reserve and U.S. Treasury Department kept telling the public that inflation was only transitory or temporary. Now, that critical error caused the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low for nine months while inflation took hold. When the consumer price index hit 9%, the Fed started raising interest rates too fast, causing treasury bonds, which had been purchased by in, in huge amounts by big and small banks. It caused the value of them to plummet. Now, Warren Buffett's expression, when the tide goes out, everyone will know who was swimming naked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it showed that the investors and depositors didn't know that many California banks were more interested in being woke than applying risk management guardrails. Mm. On March 13th, the first domino to fall was Silicon Valley Bank, whose management, we learned, was asleep at the switch. Jimmy SVB was more interested in the yield-killing ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance investment policies. They also donated over $70 million to Black Lives Matter and implemented nonstop pride initiatives, causing the public to fear the soundness of these regional banks like SVB, driving depositors to begin moving to the too-big-to-fail money center banks. Wow. R.C., that is a mouthful. But if I remember right, the U.S. Uh, successfully fought inflation in the 1980s with President Reagan and Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. So why doesn't the government redeploy these policies? You know, and there's the $64 trillion question. <laughs> you see, progressive leftists in the government embrace the modern monetary theory, MMT. It says that printing money will not cause inflation. So the printing presses went into overdrive. Since Joe Biden became president in 2021, the U.S. national debt grew from $26.9 trillion to $31.5 trillion, and inflation went from under 2% to over 6%, but woke po politicians still fail to make the connection and want to keep spending and raising taxes to pay for it. Wow. So where are we now? Didn't SVB depositors, including those above the 250000 FDIC insurance have access to their money the next day? They did, but, but there's a problem. And the total bank deposits in the U.S. top $19 trillion. And 40%, or about $8 trillion, are above the $250,000 mark that are insured by the FDIC. But here's another problem, Jimmy. The FDIC only has $128 billion in a special fund to bail out $8 mm. trillion in depositors. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in the case of a contagion of bank failures, the Fed would have to ramp up the money printing press again to insure depositors. And unfortunately, that's only the tip of another iceberg. U.S. spending since 2008, uh, the 2008 financial crisis under three presidents has taken the U.S. debt to 129% of gross domestic product, all financed by quantitative easing, thereby diluting our dollar, which causes even more inflation. So what it sounds like, really, you, what you're saying is that another bank failure is not a matter of if, but when. Yeah, it really looks that way. But the big thing governments do not want is the optics of lines of customers all over the nation clamoring to get the money out of banks reminiscent of 1930. Now, over the past two weeks, Treasury Secretary has made multiple announcements, first on March 13th, saying that deposits were not guaranteed, which really roiled the markets and the stock market took a hit. Three days later, she guaranteed the deposits, so the markets recovered, followed by Wednesday's comment that there are no plans to boost the FDIC guarantees, implying that deposits are not guaranteed. Now, this has opened the door to total confusion, a drop in regional bank shares as depositors are rushing to the too-big-to-fail banks that could lead to more regional bank runs. 
Now, in Europe, Credit Suisse, the eighth largest bank, needed a bailout, was taken over for pennies on the dollar by UBS. And on Friday morning, rumors of more financial trouble at Deutsche Bank, Germany's biggest bank, had financial markets on edge. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, I believe that both the U.S. and EU governments absolutely know how they could end bank runs forever. By making the dollar and the euro digital guaranteed by the central banks, there would be no other place to move your money. Mm, wow. Uh, okay, RC. We've talked on many broadcasts how CBDCs could happen and how that fits in with Revelation 13. Yeah, Jimmy, Revelation 13, 11 through 17 tells us that when the Antichrist is at the peak of his power, his second in command, the false prophet, a powerful religious leader, will will cause everyone on earth, regardless of status or position, to take a mark of loyalty on their right hand or forehead for the privilege of buying and selling. Revelation 9, 11 through 14 tells us that the penalty for those who take that mark is the second death in the lake of fire for eternity. Jimmy, on our website, uh, prophecytracker.org, we often use the old adage, future events cast a shadow before them. In this case, the cashless society, uh, beginning with central bank digital currencies, will set the stage for the government of Antichrist. Wow, wow. We're there, RC, and I think it's so important that we focus on these things, not to make people fearful, but because we understand what is taking place in Bible prophecy, it really helps us to understand the urgency of the hour. I'm not saying the urgency of the times anymore. I'm saying the urgency of the hour and how we need to be prepared and pure and productive in all that we're doing. And I thank you for what you do. Your website, prophecytracker.org, is an excellent website that folks should go to to continue studying and finding out what's taking place. RC, thank you for joining with us this week. Thank you for having me on, Jimmy. It was great to, uh, great to be back on the show. Well, that last half hour was packed. We had uh, David Dolan, Winky Bedad, R.C. Merrill uh, covering all these topics around the world. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about Iraq, well, actually Babylon, with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as I said at the outset of the program, I just returned to the United States from Israel and Jordan, and we talked about that a little bit while we were there, but it's a great time. If folks want to go, how and when would we have our next trip available? Jimmy, our next trip are in the fall. If you want to look at, put it on your calendar, maybe save the date, October 11th through the 20th and November 8th through the 17th. We would really love for you to go to Israel. We see it as the greatest classroom for studying God's word, both uh, prophetic scripture and the entire Bible as a whole. If you want to go to Israel with us, give us a call, 423-825-6247. We'd love to talk to you about it. Yes, it would be a great time. It's a trip of a lifetime. It certainly is. Well, as we uh, go to our legacy series this week, we're going to conclude our section, our study on the second coming of Jesus Christ and how the literal city of Babylon plays into the prophetic scenario. Dr. DeYoung would like to show you how the destruction of literal Babylon will take place and to point out 
to all studying with us today that the last thing Jesus does before he comes back to the earth is destroy Babylon. First, however, let us review two very important chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18. Now just go to chapter 18, chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. We can trust in the word of God because it is absolutely in conformity with everything that Jesus is going to do and and has done in the past, will do in the future. Look here in chapter 18. I told you there was one thing that was going to have to happen before all of this scenario I have this taught you will unfold. One thing. This is a seven-year period of time after the rapture of the church. In the first three and a half years, we have chapter 17 in the book of Revelation. That's a one-world religion headquartered in the city of Rome, Italy. The Antichrist will be the head of that church. The revived Roman Empire, the Ten Horns, you can read chapter 17 as well as I could read it to you now. The Ten Horns will be the revived Roman Empire. They're going to come to power, and the Antichrist will rule and reign from this false religion in Rome for the first three and a half years. If you've got chapter 17, you have it because I told you to go chapter 18. Look at chapter 17 and verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, that would be the revived Roman Empire, these shall hate the whore, that's the apocalyptic term for the church, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This false church at the end of three and a half years is going to be completely destroyed. Why and how does that all come about? Look at verse 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. Notice what it says. God will use human world leaders to accomplish his will. Puts it in their heart. Lost people to accomplish his will. That's chapter 17. He says, I've got a plan that's got to work out. I'm going to use these human world leaders to accomplish it. Now go to chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things, now that's not really difficult to understand, is it? Don't need to be a rocket scientist to get that phrase. After these things, after what? The false church, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having a great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirited cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon. The word Babylon is used three times in chapter 18. The word city is used six times. It's talking about the city of Babylon. The word great is used eight times. The great city of Babylon is focused on here in chapter 18. As you read through chapter 18, it talks about the merchants waxing rich in partnership with the Antichrist. As he finishes up his three and a half year reign over the false church in Rome, where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. The abomination of desolation takes place. Then the false prophet puts together an image of the Antichrist, which will talk and move. They put the image in the Holy of Holies. The Antichrist is going to leave. Where does he go? He goes to the literal city of Babylon. You say, wait a minute, Daniel chapter 5 says Babylon was destroyed. Well, it says Babylon, the empire was destroyed. 
It never says the city was destroyed. The city was not destroyed. Babylon, the empire was destroyed. Now, how do I know that? Well, I read some more of the Bible. I got over to the book of Ezra chapter seven and Ezra the scribe who came to Jerusalem to reinstitute the temple practices was living in Babylon when he left to go to Jerusalem. That's 75 years after the fall of the Babylonian empire. I also read a bit of secular history. Alexander the Great, 200 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, put his Grecian kingdom in place, and he was headquartered also in the city of Babylon. He was so important to him, he opened up the Euphrates River coming out of the Persian Gulf so 500 gunships could come up and protect him. That was 200 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. I read the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, where Peter, following the command of Jesus, start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Where did Peter go? He went to Babylon. It says, all the saints in the church in Babylon salute you. You see, at that time of Peter's life, Babylon was the second most populated Jewish city in the world, second only to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Rome. He never went to Rome. And he didn't start the church in Rome. The apostle Paul did. And so Babylon means Babylon. The word of God means what it says. And Peter never spoke out of place. He always was right in your face with what he meant. He went to Babylon and there was, by the way, that's 500 years after the fall of the Babylonian empire. Do you not understand during the Iraqi situation, there was a military base in Babylon called Camp Babylon. It was there for the purpose of having a 21 nation multinational peace force. In fact, the United States government is paying millions of dollars because they messed up all the archaeological remains in Babylon. The New York Times reported that the United States is investing, investing millions of dollars in the rebuilding of Babylon. Prime Minister Maliki, Prime Minister of Iraq, it was born and raised in Babylon. Babylon has never been destroyed. It will be destroyed. How do I know? Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and the book of Revelation. In chapter 18, verse 10, verse 17, and verse 19, it says, in one hour, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon will come to power as the economic center of the world. The merchants will wax rich. Well, how are they going to do that? Because everybody has to buy or sell from them. Well, how do we know they have to buy and sell from them? Because everybody living at that time has to have an identification mark on their forehead or the back of their hand. Book of Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. It says it's an identification mark in order to buy or sell. Well, how in the world could even the Antichrist make the world take an identification mark on the forehead or the back of the hand to be able to buy or sell? Well, I got an idea. How about a worldwide economic crisis? And how about the nations of the world saying, G20 in particular, the 20 top economic powers, let's put in place a governmental, economic, political, global structure. And Babylon is ready to become that. Why do you think the United States military went in there? Let me tell you a couple of things you may not know. Just before the U.S. went in, Saddam Hussein had put together a seven million man army. 
That seven million man army was called the Jerusalem army. 2,000 of them had volunteered to be suicide bombers. Their stated purpose was to go to Jerusalem, liberate Jerusalem, and give it to the Palestinian people. I want you to know this. Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of the time. He put the nation of Israel on high alert. He had the Israeli Defense Force ready to respond. He believed that Saddam was going to march across. You see, Saddam Hussein thought he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the only one that ever defeated Jerusalem. So he thought that was his calling for life. He was ready to come. What did chapter 17, verse 17 say? God will use world leaders to accomplish his will. I don't care what you think about George W. I don't care what you think about the Iraqi war. Saddam Hussein had to be removed because he was going against the plan of God. And Babylon had to come into focus, into power. For the Antichrist to rule and reign from it. Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, makes this statement. And he's a very computer savvy guy. He said, Iraq, as they rebuild their war-torn nation, is putting in a state-of-the-art, cutting-edge telecommunication system. Which will make it the Silicon Valley of the Middle East, maybe the world. In addition to that, petroleum engineers tell us that over in Saudi Arabia, the oil is running out. In Iran, the oil is running out. The number one and number two suppliers of oil. And under the earth in Iraq is the greatest source of petroleum, of oil in the world today. Dubai is going to look like a backwater village compared to what Baghdad, Babylon will look like. When they start taking the riches from that oil, they've only touched 2% of it. It will come to power. It will be the world headquarters economically. The Antichrist will rule and reign the last three and a half years. Go to chapter 16 with this I close. Chapter 16. It's the last of 21 judgments. Chapter 16, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Verse 19. And that great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, notice, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And he destroys in one hour Babylon. Why? Read chapters 50 and 51 of Jeremiah sometime. Seven times in those two chapters it says Babylon will be destroyed. Chapter 50 says, because you destroyed my temple. Chapter 51, verse 11 says, because you destroyed my temple. You don't mess with God's temple. And it says that they will be as Sodom and Gomorrah. But it has to come to power. It has to come to power. When it does, it's destroyed. And it's the last thing before Jesus steps back on earth. And we're living in a world like never in the history of this world where Babylon is being positioned. Babylon is modern day Iraq positioned for God's prophetic scenario to be fulfilled. The Lord destroys Babylon. Jesus steps back on earth.
That's the time in which we're living. Oh, remember Jesus? As in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Do you know Noah lived 350 years after the flood? You know where he lived? With his great-grandson, Nimrod, in Babylon. That was the focus in the days of Noah. The focus today. Father, thank you for these awesome truths. Help us to understand all of these events that are unfolding. And then, with that knowledge, make proper decisions as to how to live as we quickly approach the fulfillment of all of Bible prophecy. In thy precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, told us how it would be in this world when he returns to the earth. He said in Matthew 24, verse 37, As in the days of Noah, and in the 350 years that Noah lived after the flood, the focus of the world was on Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. We are actually living in the day when Jesus could return to the earth. But remember, seven years before his second coming, the rapture takes place, and the rapture could happen today. Next week on the broadcast, we'll start a brand new study on the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a very important study. Hope you can join us. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Remember, you can get these Legacy Series, most of them from our website, and you can continue your study with him. But we've got to take a break up when we come back. Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Nigeria's gubernatorial elections were last weekend, and the stakes are high for Africa's largest nation. Following last month's presidential elections, Nigerian voters went back to the polls in 28 states to elect new governors. Greg Kelly with World Mission says Christian communities were targeted with voter intimidation. World Mission supports Nigerian believers in gospel ministry, which ultimately changes hearts. Pray for Nigerians to know Christ as King. And when Jesus walked among men, people thought, surely nothing good can come from Nazareth. Yet that was the hometown of our Lord and Savior. For security reasons, we can't name the place in East Africa where Set Free Ministries works, but it has a reputation like Nazareth. Jesus is the light of the world, rescuing people from spiritual darkness. Light Academy, Set Free's Christian High School, carries the same mission, and sponsorship paves the way for transformation. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, as we take a look at these stories, events, uh, things that are happening around the world, what we focus on each week, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, there is a reason uh, why we study Bible prophecy. There certainly is a reason why we study, and one thing Dad used to tell us, you plan your work and you work your plan. If we look at a plan that has been put in place, and this is one thing that is very comforting to me because the world is full of chaos and there's so many different things going on in the world right now, but we look at a plan that started in Genesis and goes all the way through the book of Revelation. If we study Bible prophecy, we see where we are in that plan. We see prophecies that have been fulfilled and we can gain assurance from the prophecies that were fulfilled, that future prophecies are going to be fulfilled, and it certainly could put your mind at ease and let you know that God has a plan, and he's working his plan. We are part of his plan, and we will be in the future as well. Yes, that's what we talked about with R.C. Merle. Now, you know, as we talk about events, we focus with our broadcast partners, what is taking place. With Ken Timmerman, we look at events taking place, European Union, why nations and leaders are acting as they are, Ken helps us focus on that, but then we make that conclusion and we draw it from Bible prophecy that God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. That is something that we have always talked about. We've done several DVDs and videos. We did those with Dad. And when you look at God using these leaders, of course, he is putting these situations He's putting these plans into place. Now, when we look at individual events, when we look at individual news stories on this program, and we choose those news stories very carefully, but we look at them, and it seems like the prophetic scriptures are coming to life right before us. Now, even if you go back, Jimmy, to the creation of the state of Israel, one of the greatest examples of fulfilled prophecy that we can tangibly see as we look at these things, as we look at these events taking place, it's just so easy to look at them and say, God has his hand in what is going on in the world today, and he is getting ready for his end time scenario to begin. I remember when, uh, speaking of videos that we've done, uh, we've done several, and um, we did one standing at the stones, the very stones uh, next to the western mm. wall, the plateau in the city of Jerusalem, in the old city, where those stones were thrown off by the Romans in 70 AD. And I remember Dad stated there, said, if you want to touch something that's tangibly, you know, uh, that's from God, touch these stones because these these stones are prophecy being fulfilled they're still there today and they remind us that god has a program from the past the present and the future for the jewish people you know we talk about bible prophecy it's profitable uh, prophecy comprises of at least 30 percent of god's word the way that he communicates with us it's proven just as you said rick you know, the the very fact that prophecies in the Old Testament have come true, 500 prophecies have already come true pertaining to Christ's 
first coming, what took place in the Bible. So there are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. The confidence that I have that those remaining prophecies will happen is because the first 500 came true exactly as they were given, correct? That's so true, Jimmy. And again, that is the assurance that we have in this world full of chaos, full of unpredictability. I mean, every week we talk about all these situations. We talk about what's going on in Iran and they're developing nuclear weapons. It may be a nuclear arms race in the Middle East between different countries there. And we talk about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And it seems like the world is falling apart. But again, we do know that God has a plan and he has given us that plan. And it, we talk about prophecy being profitable. 33%, 30% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. God put it in there for a reason. He wants us to know it. He wants us to study it. It gives us comfort. It gives me comfort, that's for sure, in this day and age. Yes, and it's purifying. Studying Bible prophecy is purifying, knowing that Christ could come at any moment, that rapture, the sound could take place, and we could be caught out of here. It purifies us, and it's promised that those who are looking for the blessed event, that hope that's within us about the rapture, the coming of the Lord, we will receive an eternal reward for having that mindset. And that's why we do this program, so that we can help believers, uh, those people around the world. Every you know, We have people we know that listen in many areas of the world. We're helping them to have a better understanding of what is going to take place in the future, how it's going to unfold. It is fairly simple. If you have the, the, the proper study uh, guidelines for studying Bible prophecy, how to understand it, and, uh, you know, uh, we just need to get into God's Word. And we do offer some helps to help you with that, but there are many that are out there, and it just sometimes it's just a matter of opening up God's Word. I think that's the, the key, Rick, when we are looking at this. Uh, when we put the, together the, the events and the, the stories that we're going to cover, it has to do with our understanding of how Bible prophecy is going to unfold in the future. Sure does, Jimmy. And you and I have talked about this many times. It's about putting our lives in context right now. Where are we in Scripture? Where, what is our plan? What is the role that God has for us? And again, you've talked about it being prepared, being pure, being productive. And again, what are we supposed to do? All these things that we talk about, all the scripture that we talk about is pointing us to the fact that we need to get out there. We need to share the gospel because God's plan is coming to fruition and it could be at any moment now. Yes. Well, folks, uh, and certainly as we have seen it on the program today, we for sure can say that uh, we are getting closer and closer every single moment. Rick, thanks for doing all the, the hard work uh, of uh, getting our interviews today, lining up the stories, uh, you and I together, looking at the world events, and then just deciding that these are the things that God wants us to focus on this week. We sure appreciate uh, all the hard work that you do. We look forward to being with you next week. Folks, You know, with everything that we've seen today, the rapture can't be far away. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 
Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.